Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In a week, my family will embark on a perilous adventure together. We are going to brave the stormy seas and the smoldering ocean sun to join Mickey and Minnie and all of their little friends on a gigantic boat called a cruise. The name of the boat is Dream. Funny, because it could feel like a nightmare. It's not landlocked, there'd be a lot more land. It's shiplocked. You can imagine the excitement in our family. My parents celebrated their 50th anniversary in the last couple of years. And they both decided there was no better way for them to celebrate than to take our entire family, all grandchildren included, on a Disney cruise. Well, my wife Allison and I made a huge mistake. We told our children about it when it was planned a year ago. You can imagine the number of questions. I'm not joking when I say that packing began for the trip about 10 days ago. And Allison very wisely would take little portions and pieces and put it in the side guest room in our house. So there's this piling of excitement if you wanted to go in there and see it. You know, rather than be annoyed by their excitement because secretly I'm kind of excited too, It's gonna be an incredible trip and a great experience and what better way for our parents to be honored than with the whole family there. But rather than be annoyed, you know, I'm actually learning from them. I'll say it differently, I'm learning to be like them. To know the future reality, to borrow from it, to bring it into the present day, and to let it affect how you think, how you feel, how you see, how you live. That really is one of the secrets to the Christian life. It's not just a secret, because there really is no secret about it. It's one of the great blessings of the Christian life. Now with children, sometimes we call that Christmas, which I think we now celebrate in August, maybe September. It might make it to Texas OU weekend, maybe. Or birthdays, where we have half birthdays because we're so excited about our real birthday that we have to celebrate it at its halfway point. But really, it's hope. It's the ability to take hold of future realities and let them invade your present circumstances. And we do this all the time, or if we don't do it, we call it hopelessness. And here's the reason why. When it comes to worldly hope, it's based on future possibilities. It'll never work. As a matter of fact, if you're like me, if you try to borrow from future possibilities, what you're going to receive in return is more anxiety, more distress, less sleep, and you could go on and on and on and on, and why? It's because it's possible, but not guaranteed. 
And the best that could come from that is that we would become very self-determined and motivated to do whatever it took for us to be able to reach that goal or that dream or that wish or that hope. But even still, it's uncertain. Not so with godly hope. Not so with godly hope. It's a certain hope because it's not based in you and me. It's not based on possibilities. It's based on promise. And the warp and woof of the Christian life, the rhythm that we set, the pattern that we feel as we live in a world where there's much brokenness and we feel a desperate need for hope at times is that we have a reality to borrow, an anchor for the soul. And let me say this, it's not just an anchor for the awful times. Certainly when the wind and the waves are raging, we need an anchor on our ship. But it's also an anchor to keep us in quiet waters. Let me say it differently. Godly hope makes every pleasure more pleasurable. And it makes every pain more endurable. And as this benediction says, by the power of the Spirit, we actually start to see very strange things come in circumstances where they should not be. Peace. Patience, faith, joy. Isn't that what we want? I hope that's what you want. If it's not what you want, I would love to convince you that it should be what you want. It's what you were made to yearn and to long for. And it's part of the promise of God. I wonder, what are you hoping for today? Maybe to say it differently, where do you feel hopeless? Perhaps you're someone who struggles a lot and finds yourself in a place of hopelessness often. And you feel like you're trying to work your way out of it. The anchor for your soul is not worldly hope, it is godly hope. Because it's the only certain hope, scripture says, those who don't know him are without hope in this world. And so from here on out, when you hear me say hope, I'm referring to the godly kind, the certain kind of hope, the anchor for the soul. Not a hope that is based on a possibility, but is based on promise. And I want us to be reminded this morning that we can certainly be hopeful. So what kind of realities would make me say such a thing? Or let me say it differently. Where does hope come from? And how do we experience it? And it's really... No surprise, it comes from God the Father and his promises, it comes from God the Son and his work, and it comes from God the Spirit and his power. Okay, so first, God the Father and his promises. Uh, look again with me back at the benediction. Hope you enjoyed your short scripture reading this morning. The first line. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing now, Paul begins by giving God a designation that's pretty unique. It's not uncommon in Scripture to partner God with hope, but to call him the God of hope. It makes you wonder why, and his point is that hope comes from God and it originates in God. To say it real frankly, so many of us want the hope of God, but we're not very interested in the God of hope. 
We can't have it that way. It's not a negotiation. He is the God of hope. And our experience of his hope is in direct connection with our experience of him. To have him is to have hope. To not have him is to not have hope. And so Paul begins by saying hope originates with him and his promises. Now, we we know a promise is only as good as its fulfillment. If I offered to take you out to lunch and to buy your lunch and promise to buy your lunch, it's going to be proved when we get to the cash register. Your trust in my promise needs a certain sense of proof. Now, the irony of the Christian faith is that faith, we're told in the book of Hebrews, is the certainty of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But even still, Paul helps the skeptic and the doubter like me this morning, and he provides proof. Okay, and the proof is this. Not only am I telling you to trust in the God of hope, he's trustworthy. He's proved himself to his people. He does not lie. He is faithful to his promises. And how do I know that? Well, back up with me in Romans 15. There's a pew Bible if you don't have one. You could also use your cell phone if you wish. Paul provides proof just prior to this benediction. To say it differently, he gives reason and evidence for hope. Starting in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Did you see that? The long-awaited Messiah Christ became a servant to the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. A common theme throughout Paul's letter to Rome is that God's salvation has finally and fully come. It's been revealed and it's been fulfilled the messianic fulfillment in Jesus Christ the Lord. But when he begins his letter, he makes it very clear. Though the promise first was given long ago to the Jewish people, there is no distinction to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. That the promise that was given long ago had inclusion of the Gentiles wrapped up in it. But as a Jewish Christian, this is going to be hard to swallow. This is not something that's fit. This is not something that's fair. It's like oil and water. It's a very strange thing, those Gentiles. Well, Paul's bringing this into light. The Jews were the first to receive the promise, and the Gentiles the last to be included. But from the beginning, the glory of God's salvation and rescue was promised to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. When God first made his promise to the patriarchs of old, he said, I will be your God, you will be my people, and my blessing of rescue, my blessing of of inclusion and care is going to start with you, but it will go to every tribe and every tongue and every nation throughout the entire earth. Our famous verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved 
the world that he gave his only son. And so a Jewish Christian looking at this is going to say, Paul, I need proof that the patriarchs had such a hope as what you're saying was promised. Were they aware? Did they understand? Did they hope in the same kind of hope that you're now reading back through the Jesus Christ Messiah bit? And he gives four verses, and we're going to quickly go through them. But I think you'll see he's giving reason and evidence that they might have hope. He begins, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's Psalm 1849. That's a word long ago from the mouth of David himself, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. He is hopeful and aware of the magnitude of God's promise. Continues, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32:43. That's a word long ago from Moses, from the mouth of Moses. In the history of Israel, he too was hopeful and aware of the magnitude of God's promise. And again, it says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117.1, a word long ago from the poets of Israel, aware of the magnitude of God's promise to Israel and the Gentiles. And again, finally, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And that's from Isaiah 11.10, a promise of hope long ago from the prophets. Okay, Paul is not being accidental in his selections. He is chosen from the history of Israel and chosen from the poets of Israel and chosen from the prophecy of Israel. He is quoted directly from two of the most venerated patriarchs in Jewish history, David and Moses. And his point is this, the promise given to them has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You have great reason to hope. He doesn't fail on his promises. He will rescue his people. He will preserve his people. He has a future reality for his people that you can trust in. And therefore, when you suffer, or when you experience something good and just can't wait for the day when it's perfect and great, there is a future reality for you as God's person. Do you struggle to trust God? If so, you're certainly going to struggle to trust in his promises. The problem could be persistent pain. It could be severe loss. It could be the absence of something you've longed for for a very long time. All legitimate things. But I do wonder sometimes if maybe whenever we find ourselves embittered, disappointed, unable to trust God, if it could be that we put our faith in something that he never actually promised. Hope comes from the God of hope and his promises. Reacquaint yourself with his promises. This is his book of promise. 
The more you are connected to him and receiving from this, the more hope you will experience in your life. And it's not just a prescriptive thing that you put down to take care of a sickness for a short time. It's a way of life. It's a new way of life. Borrow from his promises and experience hope. But certainly uh, where we see this maybe most clearly is from God the Son and his work. We hope in the promises of God the Father and his promises seen most clearly in the work of God the Son. Paul ends his, uh, I'll call it a patriarchal proof, with words from Isaiah. He says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. In him. And the him is Jesus Christ, stated clearly in verse 8. He is the son of David, who is the son of Jesse. And it's very common in the Christian faith to hear hope in Christ. As a matter of fact, it's central to the Christian faith, the in Christness of it. And it's a common theme throughout the epistles to hope in him. But it's spoken of in so many ways. I just want to offer you a few this morning. First, is it a hope in his death? Christianity is kind of a strange creature. We hope in the death of someone. And we certainly do. Ephesians says it this way. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has reconciled us to God and one body through the cross, killing any hostility that previously existed. Hallelujah. We hope in the cross of Christ. We glory in his crucifixion. And we borrow from it and bring it into our present reality. Because God was using his death to reconciliate us to himself. A relationship without fear. To know God and be known by him. To not have fear of abandonment or estrangement. Paul tells us earlier in this letter that nothing can separate us from that reconciliated love of God in Christ Jesus. A love we can't earn and a love we can't lose. There's nothing better than that. And how did God choose in his divine knowledge to do it? He did it through the cross, through the death of Jesus Christ. Because there was no distinction between Jew and Greek. They're both sinner alike. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result, have been separated. But in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself. Hallelujah. I don't know, maybe you struggle with feelings of abandonment or estrangement. Maybe you often feel insecure in your faith, wondering if you can lose it or if God's love, at least, is something that you have to try to gain every day. No says the finished work of Jesus on the cross. What you did not earn, you cannot lose. So draw near to him in faith. And also receive hope for your earthly relationships. If he can reconcile us to himself, certainly we can be reconciled one to another. 
And so maybe that's your place where you need hope. A difficult marriage where there's been so much distance, a dividing wall of hostility that it would seem impossible to ever be reconciled. Maybe it's with the child. Maybe, fathers, you've exasperated your children, or maybe your children have exhausted you. Maybe it's with a friend. Betrayal has crept in, and it's created distance with someone you once knew so well. Whatever it is, there is hope in the death of Christ to be reconciled one to the other. Borrow from that hope and let it give you courage to take the first step. But that's not it. It's not just a hope in his death. It's also a hope in his resurrection. Of course it is. Peter says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the end. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If the death of Christ is a reminder of the hope of reconciliation, then certainly the empty grave is a reminder of the hope of redemption. God does not waste pain on his children. He did not waste it on his son. He will not waste it on you. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt badly. But it means that he reaches into the grave and says, death and decay will not win. For my child, all suffering is temporary and all glory and joy is eternal. To say it differently, like Paul did earlier in this letter, the sufferings of this present age are not to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. I do not in any way mean to minimize anyone's pain. And some of you know some pain that I've never known. But I do mean to maximize the glory that is the hope that you cling to in those moments. It's a reality, not a possibility. Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and with him so shall we. Hallelujah. There's a hope in Christ's death. There's a hope in Christ's resurrection. And there's a hope in Christ's return. Titus says it this way. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Listen to this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's his return. Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's been the cry of the church for ages. Well, I kind of like this world. Why do I want to leave it? Because you have no idea what's in the next. Everything sad will be undone. Everything imperfect will be perfected. 
Everything rude and bad and gnarly and sinister and angry, full of rage, no more. If the cross gives hope for reconciliation and the resurrection gives hope for redemption, his return gives hope for renewal. He will make all things new. And it's not a form of escapism. That's how it looks like from the outside in. Those Christians always talking about heaven all the time. It's actually faith based on conviction, provided with evidence of God's faithfulness from all the way back then until now. And it fuels us to borrow forward to when he promises that he's going to return and he will make all things new. And then it sends us back into, not escaping from, but back into this present age with courage. We can face all kinds of brokenness and darkness and evil because he's going to return. And everything I just mentioned has a shelf life. There is an expiration date. There is a point at which it will be no more. It's easy to think of us as naive or oblivious, but the truth is, we're hopeful. C.S. Lewis put it this way, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on fire the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Aim at heaven, and you will get the earth thrown in. But aim at earth and you will get neither. Future realities invading present circumstances, changing everything. That's what hope is. And so we hope in God the Father and his promises and we hope in God the Son and the certainties that we receive from his death and his resurrection and his return, but we also hope in the power of the Holy Spirit Look at the benediction, and this is where we will close. The second part says this. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The Spirit in us causes hope to overflow, to abound. The word there is actually dunamis. I'll say it Texan, dunamis. Okay? I'm from Texas, I can make fun of Texans. Can we just, some of you don't think so. That's okay, all right? It's, it's dunamis, it's what we get dynamite from. Oh, have you known the Spirit of God is being able to make something explode in you? I think some of us lack water pressure. I think some of us have been dammed up for too long. Some of you may know, but 
in February and March, I took the first two months of my three-month sabbatical. August is my, my final month. My topic of study while resting, I chose to be the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I thought it was going to be about me figuring out the Holy Spirit. What I found out was the Holy Spirit was going to figure me out. That may sound strange to some of you, and that's okay. It did to me too. Until about 10 days in, and like a hand to the center of my chest, almost as if hearing it, you have long treated me like a power but not a person. My sabbatical began with confession. That rarely had I treated the Holy Spirit as person. And there's so many admonitions in Scripture to walk in the Spirit, to abide in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And they're often in very close connection with this, being filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, so when we quench the Spirit, we don't experience the fullness. Because he is the dynamite. He is the power. But it is the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not a subordinate member of the Trinity. He's to be worshipped. He's to be adored. He's to be venerated. He's to be known. So my sabbatical has been very upending. I was going to say rich. But it's more like one of those old wooden roller coasters. Are you acquainted with the Spirit? Does that question make you feel a little jittery inside? That's okay if it's you, it was me, but I would tell you confess it. Because no matter how well you know the promises of God, and no matter how well acquainted you may be with the work of Jesus Christ, if you know not the Spirit, you will never have certain hope. It'll be like being well acquainted with a piece of literature or a movie that has nothing to do with your personal experience in life. I fear that's where many of us are. And so I'm telling you, of course, be acquainted with God and his promises. Of course, meditate on and borrow from Christ and his work into your life. But become well acquainted with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it is only through him that you can have hope. This morning, uh, I couldn't decide if I had a thought because I didn't eat much breakfast and my stomach was upset or if I was being led to tell you this. So I'm going to tell you, strange introduction, especially when you only preach once in a blue moon. It's probably obvious to most of you, you can see it. There's a random and strange hair falling out of my head. About 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with lupus. It's an autoimmune disease. I hesitate to share it because I don't like attention for it. I do need your prayers. I need but don't want your sympathy because God's teaching me how to be weak. 
And it's taken at least a decade. I pray for my physicians and for a cure. I believe God can heal. But that's not my hope. You know what my hope is? It's what I just told you. I work backwards. I'm going to be made new. That's not escapism. That's the promise of God. And the the grave won't win. If you're grieving here today because you've lost someone, we heard three from Bill's prayer. It doesn't win. And I'm right with God. And I can trust him. And he's promised that even though this feels like a separation from his love, that nothing can separate me. And so when I say the pattern and rhythm of the Christian life, I only share with you that I have lupus because it is one major way in which God has taught me what hope is. And my symptoms are moderate. Skin, hair, joints, energy. But even if it gets worse, nothing can be better than this. Brothers and sisters, whether you are hopeful or hopeless today, borrow from the promises of God. Rejoice in the work of God the Son and experience hope through the power of the Spirit. Or as Paul said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let me pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when you say we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, It's true. So help us to set our mind on things above and not things below. Help us to borrow from that so that every pleasure is more pleasurable in this present day and every pain is more endurable in this present day. And we will say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. For we long for that day when everything wrong is made right and everything sad is undone. And we now see with our eyes the object of our hope. Thank you for that gift. In Christ's name, amen.